Hey guys, I just want to tell you a little bit about our Podcasts app which is now live on the App Store. It's the world's first audio-driven app for experiencing medicine. Every week you can step into the shoes of doctors with an engaging case and quiz. Download now and have a look for yourself. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. This week we're super excited to have with us another guest called Dr. Yezen Samurai. Yes, his surname is Samurai, who is an internal medicine trainee at Tommy's and also the founder of Quesmed. And I know a lot of you have probably seen them, especially with the release of the new app. He's a UCL alumni, which is obviously not a big fan because we're enemies. kings, so they're <laughs> enemies. But he's a very keen med ed, meducator, you know, published a lot of um, research articles in peer reviewed journals. He's got a degree in medical education with a distinction in technology enhanced education. He's been on the NHS Entrepreneur Program and he has done a lot of amazing things and we want to get into his head. So it's a massive pleasure, Yezen, for coming on today, taking the time out um, to kind of share your story with us and our listeners. Welcome to the show, Yezen. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So let's take it to the very beginning. We know you founded Quesmed, you're an IMT, you're working in a busy central London hospital. Tell us how it all started when you decided, do you know what, I want to be a doctor, I want to go to medical school. Start from there. Um, so I think I started uh, thinking about medicine uh, when I was maybe like 15, something like that, 16. Um, I, I think this is, this is kind of embarrassing, but I think loads of people have done a similar thing. But uh, you, a lot of people will have read the book by Oliver Sacks, yeah. uh, which is a man who mistook his wife for a hat. Um, and I, I discovered that not only, uh, I put it in my personal statement, but apparently loads of other people in my year did as well. <laughs> and that year that went through, so I thought I was very special, but turns out I wasn't. Um, but no, basically, I, I sort of read a lot of books about sort of neurology and neuroscience, and I was really interested in that sort of how the brain works. And and then I realized that perhaps I wasn't so sciencey uh, like to do like proper neuroscience and. I had some doctors in the family, mm. as I'm sure lots of mm. medical students doctors do, and I just saw them do their thing, and I, I, th- I quite liked it. I thought that they they sort of had they knew what they were doing. They sort of had kind of uh, this like long-standing knowledge that about everything. They knew everything about everything, and I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty pretty cool. I think uh, I'd like to be the person who knows everything about everything, mm. uh, and also maybe learn more about sort of how the brain works and sort of use that mm. in a way that works and in a way that helps people. So that was really my sort of first interest in medicine um, from a sort of brain type perspective. Um, and I guess, yeah, I just sort of did some work experience and learned a bit more about actually what it's like and learned it was a pretty tough job. Um, but regardless, I thought, I think it was the right one for me. And also being a medical student looked quite fun. So yeah, <laughs> I think absolutely. that is generally speaking like if you're going to spend six years or five or six years of your life doing something it's uh, it looked like a, a good thing to do just because of the variety of things and even if in the future perhaps if medicine wasn't for me i would have gone i would have gained loads and loads of skills so mm. that was really my sort of thought process and um, walk us through your medical school years so how did you evolve from year one to year five how was it all take us through that um so uh, in 
the sort of first couple of years of medical school, uh, our curriculum was very sort of traditional preclinical lectures, stuff like that. I think I probably wasn't the best preclinical student, um, mainly because I didn't really have the concentration to stay awake through a lot of my lectures. <laughs> uh, so I ended up sort of doing a lot of vision on my own and, and being quite uh, collaborative mm. with some of my friends. Um, and and that's sort of when I began to realize the importance of kind of medical education, mm. uh, I think, because I really, truly found that the pre-clinical uh, experience at my university was pretty poor mm. in the sense that it didn't allow for sort of interactive learning. It was a very old school, yeah. you know, even back then we would still, you know, get these booklets of, every, you know, every module we'd sort of go into the medical school and have this these booklets of like 30 or sorry, 30 to 50 pages of, of really sort of badly typed notes from lectures. Mm. And I think that didn't suit me at all. And I really, that sort of began my thought process of how to improve it. And then when I started going into clinical medicine and I realized I had actually learned something from my preclinical years, that's when I sort of thought, okay, let me start giving back as it were and trying to teach people in the years below me. Um, and then I sort of founded a, um, a sort of medical education pro initiative, which is still running. Um, so it's called the PAX program, where it just developed tutorials essentially twice a month for the whole term for preclinical students as part of our medsoc. Mm. And then I sort of just, it really just gave me a really awesome way of getting to know the whole medical school, basically, mm. um, from preclinical students to clinical students. And it just gave me this cool overview of how medical education can be improved to a way that's sort of sustainable. I think just kind of touching on, you know, I think that kind of triggered your passion for medical education, improving it. We always throw around the term peer assisted and you yourself have founded a few of those programs. For someone that's listening that doesn't really know about it, about to go into medical school, or is a first or second, what does peer-assisted learning actually mean? So peer-assisted learning is a um, method of learning where uh, you yourself or, or the student gets taught by those who are in a similar um, similar level of training. So that could either be someone who is in sort of the year above, for example, or a couple of years above, or even in some instances, uh, people who are in your, your sa the same year mm. as you. So really it's this idea that someone who has a good understanding of the material, who has done it recently, who understands the difficulty about what's going on, um, to try and sort of teach that to you in a way that helps you. And, and lots of research has shown that it's a really good way of uh, teaching uh, large groups of students of course, there are always going to be issues about whether or not the information that that person is giving you is 100% accurate. Mm. But if you do it in the right way, uh, then it can be a very, very powerful uh, method of teaching and um, has been very successful, at least in my experience as well. Definitely. On the note of peer-assisted learning, and I actually noted something you said uh, just earlier on about medical schooling. You said that you, you take a, a collaborative approach. Um, on that point, tell us a little bit about the power of taking a collaborative approach versus a very individualized, I'm just going to study alone, I'm competing against the world, it's me against the whole year and the whole country, I guess. Um, tell us a bit about the power of collaboration. Uh, so I think that when you're 
collaborating with your friends or whoever it is, other people, I think one thing is that because of the sheer volume of the content, you sometimes get yourself in this sort of rabbit hole where you go very deep into the content and then you realize uh, maybe too late that actually you've gone into detail into the wrong things. <laughs> so sometimes actually speaking to other people uh, allows you to get these sort of in external checks to make sure that you're on the right track with everyone else. Yeah. So when you speak to them and you say, oh, and I've been revising this, and they're like, why are you revising that? <laughs> uh, it just helps you to understand sort of what you're doing right. From that, That's from an academic perspective. Um, uh, the other thing is from a sort of resource perspective is that the more you collaborate people, the more likely you're to know about all the different uh, resources that are available. And as we know, medical students can be quite competitive, and sometimes perhaps people don't share mm-hmm. as, the resources as much as they do. But, you know, if you're friends with people or you're within a social club or a sports club, it tends to be the case where it's a bit more of a collaborative nature where everyone wants you wants to, to help each other. Um, and then I suppose the last thing is that be collaborating with others just sort of breaks things up a bit and just stops this sort of monotony of just reading and actually doing revision with others and doing OSCE practice with others. It's, you know, really one of the things that really helps you to... Um, memorize and, and understand things. And the last thing is that uh, lots of research has shown that if you teach someone something, mm. that could be your friend, um, that helps mm. you, uh, that will help you to remember things and internalize information more. So it's also helpful for you to teach others. Definitely. Throughout medical school, it seems like you're involved in lots of different things. What advice would you give to other existing medical students that may be interested in medical education or maybe inter- interested in starting their own initiatives? Um, advice and kind of balancing the exams balancing oskis finals as well as doing the project is it something you encourage is it something that you found difficult balancing while being a student uh yeah absolutely i mean uh at the time i was doing i mean there was one year where i just spent the whole year essentially focused on this or this teaching program Mm -hmm. um and then i was sort of doing obviously clinical years and some research as well on the side so it it did become quite intense Uh, i think most people sort of are able to develop this work-life balance um um, but i think with um medical education it's important to make sure you're not doing it alone Mm. i think that's one of the most important things i would say is that you need to make sure you have a sort of team uh, or people that are around you that that can help out and you can delegate or if you've got something on then your friends can do it for you, for example. Um, I wrote an article, maybe this is like four years ago mm-hmm. now, uh, called 12 Tips to Develop Your Own Teaching Program. Mm-hmm. And it just runs through like some evidence-based tips on how to develop uh, a teaching program. So if you look me up on PubMed, mm-hmm. there should be, it should be there somewhere. Um, and it just gives you an overview of sort of how to start your own teaching program if you wanted to. So, uh, That'd yeah, be great. Hope, and we can probably share that those. link, yeah, for people that may be interested. So it seems you spent medical school for its worth, got involved in lots of different projects. So yeah. it comes towards graduating. Where did you do your foundation training and kind of walk us through that experience of, you know, first day on the shop floor as an F1, your own calls. Tell us the memories, tell us the days where you're kicking yourself and thinking, oh my God, why did I become a doctor? <laughs> so take us through that journey. Uh, so I did my foundation school in North Central London, uh, and at the time that was also linked to the current East of England. So I did my first year in Stevenage, Lister Hospital, and my second year I did it at the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead. Um, and 
Uh, no, it was, a, it was an okay experience, I think, uh, on the whole. I think I learned a lot uh, as foundation training. A lot of you will know it's a very sort of uh, uh, steep learning curve. Mm, yeah. uh, interestingly, on the first day, the funniest thing was that uh, one of my regs was very busy with this patient who had this, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what it was, but this this crazy sort of myocarditis, and they were super septic, and the blood pressure was very low. And they, they're essentially on their way to the ITU and, and you know, they're really dealing with it yeah. and calling other hospitals and calling these sorts of, you know, cardiac centers. And then the, the task I had in, in comparison <laughs> was to try and finish this discharge letter. But I had finished the discharge letter, but for some reason it wasn't, um, it just wasn't like saving. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> so I had I had nowhere else to go, so I had to go to this reg who oh. was super busy, like really rammed with all these, you know, very high high level decisions that he needed to make. And I was like, "Look, man, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How do I save this discharge letter?" <laughs> and I was so stressed about it, like I was his sweat was sort of coming down. And I was so worried, um, and it just goes to show. I think it's an important lesson that sometimes, uh, as foundation doctors, we worry about things that perhaps we don't shouldn't worry about it's just because we don't have the experience so we see a, a save saving a discharge letter in the same way as perhaps someone more senior will see someone who's going to itu mm. obviously not always <laughs> the case but certainly when you're starting out it feels like yeah. it so uh, that's uh, definitely the first couple of weeks was essentially that that's that's quite funny it reminds me of when we did our first discharge letter and i remember i wrote like a like the longest essay and it took me a good hour like you know just sitting there and then i re-edited it redrafted it <laughs> and i don't know it, it could have been published into a book um but kind of having been there done that and i'm sure lots of juniors would agree it is a massive learning curve over time you yeah. do get more comfortable what advice would you give to you know the final medics that are just about to start you know what they call Black Wednesday in the summer. What can what can you say? They might become your your juniors. To be fair, yeah, they might. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I think the best advice I can give, and I'm sure lots of people have heard it before, is that you need to be nice to everyone, uh, because if you're not, then no one will help you. Mm. Uh, so that's one thing, and not just the doctors, the nursing staff, the HCAs, the secretaries, everyone, at pharmacists uh, particularly, uh, because you know you're going to need their help, and you need to just sort of don't snap at anyone, even if you really want to, because you're absolutely uh, sort of feeling under with all, all the things that you have. Um, and the other thing is to just be safe and always ask questions about. Uh, what's going on even if you're like 100 percent sure even if you're like really really sure just in case in the first couple of weeks this was something you've not done before just ask mm. um and then i think that that probably those two things will be enough because on the most part you'll be very well looked after mm. i think that should be something that people don't people forget i think people like i think when you're in the first couple of months you work you think that you're on your own but actually, like realistically, when you're F1, very rarely will you be actually on your own without any sort of support. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost never. There's always going to be someone who's there. So even if you think that there's this sort of insurmountable task, in reality, there's going to be at least two or three people with you that are going to tell you what to do. Yeah. So don't worry. No, definitely. And yes, and so when it a question that I like to ask a lot of our guests, uh, because. Most of our guests are busy in so many things, balance so many different projects and do so much. Mm. Um, how do you balance also sort of you, your mental health? How do you find downtime and what do you do in that downtime? 
Uh, yeah, downtime. I think it's um, uh, perhaps uh, nowadays the, these days I sort of don't get as much downtime because uh, I sort of tried. To, I used to go to the gym a lot. <laughs> that was the thing I used to do. But now not so much with uh, all the things that are happening. But uh, I think that it's important to try and find time for yourself, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I try to do is uh, I tend to. I mean. I try to have had to adapt realistically, so now I sort of go for runs. That's sort of my main thing. Nice. I run a lot, uh, which is good fun. Um, seeing friends and family, I think that's quite important. Um, I think again, everything is sort of on its head with COVID stuff, mm. realistically, because yeah. I mean, for example, lots of my family don't live here, so it's very difficult to see them. So that's something that I, you know, used to do quite a lot and used to, you know, fill my time with, um, you know, the normal activities like going to the gym for example uh, again not so much but you know you sort of try and adapt um, and you, you figure out what uh, is important to you um, so for me I think uh, I end up I end up sort of working really hard for long hours I, I think just things like taking regular breaks and also um, spending time with your loved ones on the most part in this current climate I think is most important um, absolutely Agreed. and not trying to fill it with work at every single moment that's the sort of best uh, advice I would give definitely and this kind of brings us on to the next topic which is quite interesting I wanted to kind of spend some time talking about it is mm. your massive enthusiast with medical education and I feel that mm. may have been the reason as to why you started Quesmed so tell us a bit about yeah. Quesmed how it all came about because um, it's always quite interesting to hear it from a founder's point of view. We 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 had issues with our with our preclinical sort of teaching program in second year. For example, we noticed that a lot of our pharmacology curriculum was quite poorly taught. Mm. Um, we had you know just these lectures are really boring. They we, they were just they went on and on and on. No one really learned anything, and we just thought, okay, we could probably do this in a better way. So me and my co-founder Stefan, both of us. Decided. Okay, let's make uh, let's make this pharmacology website where we would just put like two, three hundred questions, put it out for free to people, mm, yeah. see what happens. Actually, even before that, we had sent we had made some questions and put it on our sort of university like Moodle page yeah. um, with the help of one of our professors, and and it went really well. People really liked it. They thought it was kind of quite good interactive stuff. So then we developed this website and people liked it and we were like, Oh, okay, cool. People like it. Let's do more. Let's do a, um, let's do one for the whole of the sort of preclinical curriculum. So we're like, okay, cool. So let's do that. So then we did it. And then we were like, okay, we want to develop this even more, but actually we need to start charging people because then otherwise, how are we going to be able to get people to make questions for us? We just can't make thousands of questions. Mm. So that sort of developed a bit more. And then when we went into our clinical years, we realized that the current medical school, sort of the current online resources available, certain question banks that are currently available till now, um, are not good enough. Um, and we felt that we could do a better job. Mm. And so we're like, okay, let's do clinical. And then that sort of, that's when it catapulted into sort of, let's make a million questions. Yeah. And then we had to sort of charge people and develop, yeah. That's a sort of initial starting point, as it was. I think I should ask this question first. For people that don't know what Quesmed is, and I know it's really popular here, but we have listeners across the world. Uh, what mm-hmm. is Quesmed? Um, before we ask the follow-up question to it. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so so Quesmed is a um, 
sort of a next generation uh, medical question bank that integrates around currently 6,000 uh, single best answer questions, wow. um, 15,000 Anki flashcards, um, and a sort of ebook of notes. And the idea really is that as you go through medical questions, um, um, then the system learns about what you're learning and gives you an automated sort of personalized feed of flashcards. Mm -hmm. um, the difference in the questions is that it sort of has lots of information on why each answer is right or wrong. Um, so it gives you those in, uh, in explanations. So that the way it works is that you do the questions to understand and develop your clinical reasoning, and then you do the flashcards in order to memorize and sort of develop your sort of foundational, the foundation of knowledge. And then with, that, with all that together, sort of linking in notes and flashcards and questions. So to develop a sort of really integrated way yeah, of learning. Definitely. And I've used it myself. It really is good. And I like, which I've seen other exams bank not do as well, is you give a very good explanation for each of the answer options as to why it's not and how mm. that relates to something else. Whereas before, or typically it's, this is the right answer and this is why it's the right answer. And you never get an understanding of why that isn't the answer. And I'm sure as with medicine, um, all information is valuable. So QuizMed is growing and loads of people are using it across the country. What are some of the mm. obstacles and difficulties you've had to face growing this? Um, that maybe our users can get some inspiration from? Um, I think one of the biggest obstacles we found, and uh, I don't know if this is sort of just medicine or other uh, specialties, is that people seem to like, see, I think people tend to be a bit resistant to change in some mm. ways, um, in the sense that people like to use things that other people in the year above have used and told them about. Yeah. Um, people like to use like tried and tested means um, and we'll always revert back to that uh, whenever possible. I mean, there are certain universities that maybe don't have the sort of ethos of uh, online learning so much. Mm. So, you know, the people the year above will tell them to use these sort of SBA books, for example. And then that's that. They're happy with that. And then that's fine. That suits them well. Uh, so actually trying to convince people that, no, perhaps you can try something that's better um, has always been a bit of a challenge. Mm, yeah. um, and I think recently we've 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 made a lot of headway in terms of that and convincing people that you know products are very good. But actually, I think yeah, getting past the status quo um, and trying to make people sort of consider other options. Um, I think and I think that's true for most businesses. I think yeah. so. Trying to get past that, it's um, that sort of behavioral change. And I think yeah, yeah. I think. You know, last week we had Dr. Nadine, the founder of Proximy, you know, this augmented VR platform connecting surgeons across the world. It's, I think in medicine, because it's so kind of old school to a certain degree and we like doing things traditionally, we like doing the things the years above have done and that also shown mm -hmm. success. It is very hard to change and you always get worried that, you know, because it, a lot of it is at stake. As in, you don't want to use the wrong book or you don't want to use the wrong technique or resource and not end up as doing well when you know there's a proven and tested method. Um, but I am starting to see this behavioral shift and change where medics are a bit more receptive to new up and coming um, ways of delivering medical education. And that kind of Absolutely. takes me to the next question. A lot of, since COVID, a lot of things have rapidly translated to online you know, VR, augmented reality, you know, some of the stuff we're doing with audio-driven learning. How do you see kind of, you know, you've also got a, a, a degree in medical education. How do you see the future of medical education? I don't, I have, I find it very strong to believe it's not going to be just textbook and rote memory. How do you see the future of med ed? 
so I think that we've now reached a stage with uh, with COVID that a lot of the mental education that we have is sort of online, uh, as as everyone knows. And so I think, which in a way is good, but obviously not so good. So like one thing that I, although I didn't like lectures at all when I first started out, um, one of the things I really enjoyed was that in between lecture breaks and things like that, I would go and have coffee with my friends and mm. chill with them. Um, and I, I think I would imagine, I'm pretty sure people do want that and miss that yeah. and aren't, you know, aren't able to do that so much. And those sort of chance encounters people are lacking. So I, I think that as we go forward, although everyone does talk about things like um, machine learning and sort of developing that, uh, I, I think that and th- th- there's I always initially thought that things would go more in a, in a way of sort of efficiency and optimization yeah. in the sense that that's where machine learning is going. You know, like how can we get the best sort of bang for our buck? Mm. You know, how can we maximize the amount of information retained in a, a set amount of time? Which was really sort of what I thought we would go towards. But I think we should not forget the importance of psychology in this and that people really just want to... Uh, you know feel part of a community feel connected with people and uh, so the answer probably is that uh, the future of medical education i think is social yeah yeah and uh, the development of ways of allowing that sociability and and we see it all in sort of question banks and hopefully we're going to develop this soon sort of things like discussion boards after each question that seems to be quite popular Mm. um and and certainly that's why because people kept telling us they wanted it we're going to do that as well Mm. um and uh, and yeah, just having it somehow, which I'm sure we'll be able to figure out soon, uh, is sort of developing that social nature within uh, whatever platform is available. No, I think that's absolutely. Gonna, agree. I definitely. Agree. And to be fair, I probably did go into med school just to see my mates rather than lectures. <laughs> and I and I used to be that guy that used to walk in with a backpack full of air, and if people used to stay there, they make out of me because I never used to bring anything. I literally came to university to to kind of hang out and chill with my mates. Um, exactly. and, and I do agree and at times you know what I'm going to put it an angle as it improved my communication skills which which helps as a, <laughs> as a junior but um, no it's definitely something that I do feel really sorry for for all the new incoming medical students that they kind of miss out on the opportunity because mm. medical school isn't just medical school it's also their university experience and it's such a pivotal and crucial moment or phase in anyone's life absolutely so We've kind of talked about QuizMed and, you know, you saw kind of a problem and you kind of delivered a solution and it's taking off. Tell us a bit more of when you studied formally medical education and this technology enhanced. What does that entail? Because everyone's a teacher. Everyone can, you know, give, deliver a lecture or do a tutorial. But when you formally study it, what is the difference and what did you learn for someone that, say, doesn't have the opportunity to get a PG cert or kind of wants to get the know-how the little gems you've you've discovered over that year or so uh so i think when i went and did my pg cert um, i did it as a foundation doctor the i found that because i had so much experience in medical education before mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that i had come across was not new so it was stuff that i had sort of uh, seen here and there i i think that like the importance of doing um doing this sort of degree or or getting through it is actually so that you can sort of put a name to the stuff that you've come across mm-hmm. so for example um this concept of um you know you, you had mentioned it about uh, having an answer or a, or an explanation after each choice mm. um in a medical 
uh, question that is known as sort of what the concept of scaffolding so trying to sort of develop your clinical decision making as on on a basis of knowledge and sort of developing your your sort of decision tree mm -hmm. um, so basically allows you to sort of formalize your learning so that you can talk about it and you can sort of read up on it so like if i if i see you know scaffolding for example i can then read up on it um the um i can read up on it and i can read the research and i can sort of develop it and then i can if i if i want to i can then sort of think about developing things more interestingly i found that uh, although the module one of my favorite modules was technology enhanced learning it was funny because the, the, the module that i had learned even though it was probably developed, it was quite recent at the time, I still felt it was a bit sort of old-fashioned. <laughs> and I think that's the sort of pace of medical education now is that it's changing so rapidly. There's no way a university course can actually sort of keep up with it yeah. if it needs to change every sort of two, three years. So I think that uh, it's, I think it's good to have a mix of both. Like, yes, get the sort of formal education if you want to, but also making sure you keep up to date with all the trends and what's going on is also equally important. Mm. So let's say I'm a first year or second year medical student and, you know, I hear this podcast from Yezen and he's got this amazing platform called QuezMed, but I want to get to where you are. How do we mm. get started? What, what can we do as a medical student that's recently come to medical school? I don't have that much knowledge. I don't know how to develop a website or do all these fancy things. What advice would you give to people that are interested in education, are interested in medicine, and want to go on this path of delivering med-ed? Uh, so I think that it really doesn't need uh, that much experience. Um, or I think a lot of it is just enthusiasm. Uh, so, you know, even when you're... <laughs> in your first year of medical school or your second year of medical school, you can do things that allow you to help develop your skills. So, you know, there are lots of ways of teaching high school students, for example, mm -hmm. um, interviews, for example, loads of different ways to show. And lots of people have done it anyway before they come into medical school and just develop that understanding and how to speak to people. Mm -hmm. um, and then as you go through your medical school career, continuing to try and teach, uh, younger medical students developing sort of larger teaching programs if you can mm. rather than just sort of you know obviously starting off with like one session or two sessions but then actually trying to develop like a big teaching program mm. with a team mm. i think those are the sort of things that you can really get involved with your with your medsoc so there are lots of sort of medsoc uh sort of some people have peer assisted learning societies other people have like education societies and really sort of tagging along i mean tagging along with uh, the big kind of groups and the more senior medical mm. students realistically that will teach you so much um, and the coding and the development i mean i don't know how to code um i have just uh, uh found the right person to to co-found this company with me but actually we you know the first couple of the first couple of uh, things that we developed we just put it on the university moodle mm. sites we didn't need to code at all and that's how we got our sort of minimal viable product as it were and so yeah there are lots of easy ways yeah. to take out or, or develop your your project without you know needing to learn to code yeah definitely and i'm glad you you've said that and to all the listeners you know you don't need to have this fancy product app like doing a tutorial getting started starting very small and then growing from there is just as good as you know having one of these um platforms um i wanted to ask what does the future hold for you so your internal medicine trainee um where do you see yourself specializing 
and why have you picked that specialty of choice? So uh, I think in the future what I'd like to do is neurology and that's been my sort of interest. Um, so I did so my intercalated BSc in neuroscience which I really enjoyed. Um, I think neurology is one of those specialties that really help you to or allow you to um, make decisions about things that are not so clear-cut and I think that sort of uh, investigative uh, analysis I think is quite interesting mm. um, and trying to sort of figure out the diagnosis is um, so that's going to be my plan so next year I'll be finishing my last year of sort of internal medicine training mm. and then apply to technology and then yeah I just I think the key for me is going to be trying to figure out how to continue to uh, do my side projects yeah. um, or that, uh, whatever that is the million dollar question in terms of having that balance of still doing something you love which is clinical medicine and practicing to that degree mm-hmm. but at the same time growing something that's rapidly evolving mm-hmm. and rapidly getting very big that in itself if i'm honest at times it does feel like a full-time job um yeah. what can existing users of quesmed have as well as people that hopefully will be joining the platform expect with quesmed in the upcoming future i don't know if you're allowed to disclose that but you know since we have you we might as well Oh, so. <laughs> no, no, I'm very happy. So it's uh, yeah, top secret stuff, you know. No, um, so uh, yeah, so in the future, what we're going to do is um, so the next couple of months. So we've just released our app. So we're very excited. Uh, people have really liked it so far. So fingers crossed, uh, we'll go smoothly going forward um, as we develop more features. Mm-hmm. The next thing we're going to do is to essentially put out a new sort of redeveloped website. Uh, so that hopefully should be in January. That will allow people to sort of search for things via topic. So like search for heart failure, for example, and then all the questions, flashcards, and notes via heart failure. Um, just things, simple things like sorting out the back end, uh, sorting out, uh, um, and by that I mean sort of the, the structure of the site mm-hmm. to make things sort of go more smoothly. Um, but going forward, I think the, our movement might be towards developing video content, um, which we are doing anyways through our tutorial program, mm, yeah. but trying to integrate that with uh, so video notes, uh, questions and flashcards in a way that's useful, because yeah. I think that's quite valuable for people to just have it all in one rather than sort of separate strands. So mm. more integration is basically what we're going to yeah. want to go for. Um, and then, yeah, some... Uh, maybe some uh, university-specific resources, which we're sort of thinking out, because we, we, you know, we have we have this group of ambassadors mm. over, throughout the country, mm. which we, you know we're really lucky to have, and they give us lots of feedback and stuff. So I think trying to develop university-specific resources is is quite useful. So we'll see how yeah. we go with that. No, it seems exciting, and I think yeah. what you guys are doing is is great, and it's always nice to have existing clinicians and doctors make things that are for us as students. Um, how do they find QuizMed? How do people become an ambassador if they are interested in this or if they want some advice? How do we get in touch with you or kind of find out about the platform? Yeah, so uh, you can either email me, so yezen at questmed.com uh, or um, our sort of mailbox is info at questmed.com. Um, so I think we might get some more ambassadors uh, sign up in the sort of next maybe couple of months, mm-hmm. two or three months. So. Yeah, if you've dropped me an email, um, I'll be happy to sort of direct you to the, you know, the sign up bit so we can, or our mailing list so we can tell you what's going on. No. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, if, I give you some more information uh, as, as you want it. Awesome. Um, Yuzin, so we're coming to the end now. Um, a question that I'd like to ask now is, I'd like you to look back on your career so far 
and I'd like you to pick a moment that's filled you with joy, happiness, made you thought, you know what, this is why I chose to become a doctor. Um, because we like to put a lot of positivity out there about the career because if in the social sphere you do see a lot of negativity and sometimes that is just because of the pressures and it's just offloading that stresses. But for the first years who are coming in just to build that excitement, for the first year clinical years to build their excitement and for the new foundation doctors to build their excitement for the career to come, um, share a moment. Uh, sorry, is it, is it just a, I missed the, the first bit. Was it a point of joy in anything or doing my career so far? Yeah, a- any point at all that you can point to and say, you know what, this moment made me think this is why I became a doctor. To be honest, I'll tell you the truth. A lot of my joy has been by developing sort of, I know this is probably not the right thing to say, but uh, for me, a lot of the joy has been sort of developing good teaching for people yeah. who really needed it. Mm. Um, I think. I remember one thing that was that I think this was this was one of the early years when I was doing um, we were doing our, our preclinical teaching program and there was a first year medical student who was was in a teaching program and she had a tutor but um, she wasn't really understanding this concept of uh, something called the Allen's test which you may have come across mm-hmm. so this is a way of sort of um, um, seeing whether or not there's collateral blood supply in the hand and there's a very particular way of sort of putting it out mm. and it's quite cool because when you're a preclinical student you sort of don't see so you, you sort of read about things but no one ever really shows you so yeah, much yeah. and I remember in one of the breaks or something uh, I sort of I noticed that she I, I was just like looking over the session just to see you know what was going on and I noticed that she was sort of not really understanding so I sort of took her aside and was like oh do you want me to show you this Allen's chest they're talking about and I, I literally just, we just sat down for two minutes and I did this Alice test on her. Yeah. And I remember the look on her face being like, what? <laughs> this is how the body works, you know? Yeah, that's like this sort of insane, like, uh, kind of uh, realization that actually what we're learning about is real. Yeah, that <laughs> is true. It's a thing. It... Uh, that's amazing. I think. No, I, I, it, no, I can resonate with the fact that you. I can see that you're so passionate about making an impact in the education sphere because we all need that good teaching. Because mm. teaching, as we all say, for medicine, it, it's lifelong. We learn so much in F1, F2, and it it just doesn't stop. Even once you reach consultancy, you, you do have to stay up to date and all sorts. Mm. Um, so no, I can actually see the happiness and the pride and passion yeah. you have for it. Yeah. And credit to teachers, I think we all become better clinicians when we do have that supportive and that reg or consultant that does take the time out to teach. So anyone that's listening that does get through the years and ends up being a junior to years in, I guarantee it, and he, we're going to hold him to it, that he does have to give very good teaching sessions because we regard you as, an, as what we call an alpha educator. So yeah. someone that's at the top of their game. <laughs> Um, Competition's going to be high for yeah. the hospital that years in. <laughs> so we're coming towards the end, and thank you for taking the time out. I know you're on call, and we've been trying to do this for a while. Um, it's right. been a massive pleasure, um, and you. I really urge all our listeners to go check out Quesmed. Download the app; it's available both on the App Store and on Android phones. Um, and if you are interested, if you do want to become ambassador, or if you're you don't want to get to know years in a bit more i'm sure he'll be happy for you to send him an email um but we want to thank you thank you years and we want to thank our listeners and we hope to see you all next week